Good morning. Would you open your Bibles again to Hebrews chapter 2? And today I'll read verses 5 through 10. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Let's pray. Now, God, we pray that as we, again, uh, consider this particular passage and the importance of Jesus Christ being truly man, not only God, but also fully and and truly and uh, genuinely man. As we look at this passage, Lord, uh, help us to understand uh, what a great thing has happened. Not only have our individual souls have been saved as believers in Christ, but We have a great future, too, as uh, ruling and reigning under his dominion uh, on this earth, this new the new coming earth forever and ever. So, Lord, again, we pray that we'll be motivated uh, to look forward to ultimate things and may it affect our lives here, as we've just read about in Second Peter. So we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, so chapter one, as we saw last time, is talking about the um, superiority of Jesus to the angels. Apparently, that's a very important point historically, because at that time, as I mentioned last week, the Jews were uh, elevating like Michael, the archangel, like he was uh, their ruler almost. And so this had to be corrected. And so he's pointing out how Jesus is is greater than that. In fact, angels, we're told in the last verse of the first chapter, they're ministering spirits as sent to minister to us who are the heirs of salvation. Uh, the thing that we're really stressing here is this, that Jesus must be truly human in order for mankind, humankind, to be restored to God's original intention for mankind. Uh, we weren't meant to be in the situation that we're in. Um, so, Last time we we dealt with this issue, we said that the world was designed by God originally to be under the rule and dominion of humanity, under him, of course. And that's still God's plan. And the writer of Hebrews, in in quoting the eighth psalm here, he's bringing that out. That's still God's plan. God has not changed his mind. Uh, Again, uh, I feel like I'm almost on a mission with this issue because in my Christian life, which has been quite a few years now, I have noticed that Christians have this boring idea about ultimate things. And, you know, if you live in a place like this, like on Mount Desert Island, 
Uh, it's a beautiful place. And I can understand why some people would think, well, you know, I don't really like this idea of heaven because I like it here. And, you know, oftentimes people have been made feel guilty about that because they love the creation that God has given. They love doing the things that that are legitimate in God's creation. And yet there's this idea. If you notice, especially in our hymnals, especially the 18th century, 19th century writers, in other words, 1800s, uh, they had this. They they constantly write about uh, the what's to come as just kind of being this ethereal, non bodily existence floating around forever and ever. And you know that really does not encourage people. I mean, I've had people say to me that does not sound very interesting to me. I, I don't really. You know, I know I'm supposed to be excited about quote unquote heaven, but I really don't really. It's kind of depressing to just think about. Being in a fog all the time and, and, you know, really not doing anything important. Um, we were talking about this last week, several of us up back after the service, and someone brought up, uh, they were bringing up someone who, who's written a book recently, fairly recently, uh, Randy Elkhorn. He wrote a book called Heaven. I think it's the second time he's, he's written a book like that. He wrote one back years ago, and I didn't think it was all that good, but this one's a lot better. I think he really deals with some issues. And... Um, a couple of years ago, I read an article by him. It was, I think it was about the time his book came out again. And he made this comment in the book. He said, new bodies, which you're going to get as a, as a believer, you're going to get a resurrected, uh, you're going to be in the resurrection unto life. New bodies and the new earth are not our inventions. They are God's. It's God's invention. It's his creation. That's what. He's planned. He created us to live on and rule the earth. And Jesus became man to redeem his creation. God's people should look forward to living forever in a redeemed cosmos. And he references 2 Peter 3.13, which we just read a minute ago. And then he says this. He says, this is a life-changing perspective. And I think he's right. I think it changes people's whole outlook to look forward to this ultimate thing. Now, there's, there's an interim period, yes, where if, if you as a Christian or if I as a Christian die before Jesus comes back, we are going to be disembodied and we're going to go to heaven. We're going to be in the presence of Christ disembodied. But that's not the ultimate thing. It's kind of like flying home from someplace and you're on your way back to the airport and you, you, you have these stops in between. When you're sitting in an airport, you don't say, oh, I'm home, I'm home. You're looking forward to the ultimate thing. So we shouldn't even think of that place that we're going to go when we die. If Jesus doesn't come back for us, we shouldn't think of that as the ultimate thing because it's not. It's kind of a way station. It's a, it's a place where we're just waiting for the ultimate thing. And even when you read the book of Revelation, you see the saints there crying out. You know, they're crying out things like, Lord, when are you going to avenge us? And all of that type of thing. So we should not think of the present heaven where many of our friends and relatives have gone. We should not think of that as the ultimate plan of God. It isn't. His ultimate plan is for for human beings, saved human beings, to live in a new creation. In real bodies, doing real important things and ruling and reigning on this earth. And yes, it's probably... I see no reason why it wouldn't be. In fact, there are hints of this in the book of Isaiah that on this in the, in the new creation, there will be animals, but they won't be like they are now. 
they won't be trying to kill you or, or that sort of thing or, or doing things that they shouldn't be doing that we have to take care of and clean up after. Uh, they'll be they'll be redeemed, too. Um, but this world was designed by God to be under the rule and dominion of humanity, and it will happen. Now, in verse five, this is a little bit of review. Uh, we see in verse five that phrase, the world to come, and it will be under the domain of humanity. That's taught implicitly, as we saw in the eighth psalm, which is quoted here. Uh, but the sad reality is, is that I don't want to say we've lost dominion because God's never taken it away, but we're greatly challenged now to be in charge of this world. It's not user friendly. It's it's greatly challenged. We've slipped. We've fallen from the glory and honor and lordship over the earth that, that God himself gave us. And so the question is, is it irretrievably lost? I mean, we can't do a thing about it. We can't save our own souls and we can't we can't keep ourselves from dying and all around us, um, the world is, this present world, from our perspective, is out of control. And yet we notice there's a ray of hope there in verse 8 when he, when he uses that phrase, not yet, which he's implying that it's not irretrievably lost. Uh, it implies that dominion in its fullness is coming, just like it's quoted there in verses 5 and following out of the 8th Psalm. It's going to be all right. We're not only saved from the penalty of sin, but we're going to be restored. Uh, we're the heirs of salvation, which means we haven't got it yet. We haven't gotten our inheritance yet. So it's so vital to, to, to remember that Jesus is fully man, and it took a man, the Psalm 8 man. He's the Psalm 8 man. We didn't fulfill it, but he comes and he does fulfill it. So... This passage, it kind of gives us a cliffhanger here. It doesn't last very long. Someone has restored and regained the glory and the honor and the dominion of, of humanity. Let me read verse 9 again. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And he goes on to describe what he did to bring us back. He had to die. Now, again, if you stop and think about it, if, if you... If you read your Bible and you know reality is, is that we're fallen creatures, the Bible clearly teaches that we can't save ourselves. And some people think that if I'm just good enough, I'll be saved. But that's a terrifying thing because everybody knows in their heart that they're not worthy unless they're totally duped. Um, Who's going to rescue us? Who's going to return things to the way they are? You know, I, I like, and I think that this is not an uncommon thing with me. Uh, people love to look at historical records of things where there's been some great rescue. Uh, like, you like reading books where you see where someone is in a really bad situation. Like, I particularly like reading about POWs and some of them, how they escaped. I just read, I watched a, a video this week of how two RAF pilots, how they escaped. In Germany, they'd been very badly injured in a plane crash, and they made it all the way to Gibraltar and, and got back to England. And it's, it's, it was quite a it was quite a well done documentary. But we like reading those things when all hope is lost. 
when it doesn't seem there's any way out. Another one is, and it became well-known again, Remember, you know of the USS Indianapolis, and it was made well-known well again in 1975 when the movie Jaws came out because there's that scene where uh, Sam, what was his name, Quint, the, the captain, he's telling about when he was in World War II and he was on the USS Indianapolis, and he tells the story of how of how the ship was sunk. You remember historically what happened was it was right near the end of the war and the U.S. Indianapolis, a very highly secret mission, they were delivering the two bombs to an island near Japan to be dropped on Japan. And uh, what happened was it was so secret that no one knew that they were out there. So after they delivered the bombs, they were on their way back to the Philippines when about five torpedoes were shot at them by, by a Japanese submarine and two of them hit and within 12 minutes... The, the ship sunk, and the ship started out with 1,196 men on it, 1,197, depending on which document you read, and uh, 900 went into the water, and only 317 survived because they were be being, most of them, were, the ones who died, were eaten by sharks. And that's the story that Quint tells in, in Jaws. But if you watch the test, now I think there's only, last I knew, there's only one remaining survivor of the Indianapolis. But if you, if you watch, like on YouTube, if you watch the testimonies of men who survived that, they're gripping. They're gripping stories. And they were in the water for five days until a pilot flew over and he saw a little glint in the water. And he flew down and he, see, he, saw, he saw all these men floating around in the water. And they were soon rescued. And, uh, but if you listen to their testimonies, they, they will talk about how all hope was lost. And then seemingly out of nowhere, they were rescued. That's exactly what's happened to us spiritually. There was no hope for us at all. We had no hope. We were without God in the world. The, the creation had gone, run amok. And then we see Jesus, as it says here in the ninth verse. God sent his son into the world. Now, who, who is this? Who is this man? He's Jesus, he says in verse 9. We see Jesus. Uh, one commentator says the purposes of God cannot fail, and it is in the man, Christ Jesus, that these purposes are restored and brought to fulfillment. So we're destined to be the rulers of this earth, and Jesus has accomplished it. He's the Psalm 8 man. You know, when you read the whole 8th Psalm, it almost sounds like a mockery, when, or even the verses that are quoted here. It says, you made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And think, boy, it doesn't look like everything's on a man's feet because it's not right now. But Jesus has accomplished it. We see Jesus, the one who was in the form of God. He took on our nature. He was made a little lower than the angels, just like us. Verse seven. A real person, a real human person. So this divine person, God the Son, didn't cease to be God. Nothing was taken away from him when he came into this world, but something was added to him, human nature. The word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. He was made a little lower than the angels. Now, just a little technical note about verse 9. Um, before I say it, um, Dale Ralph Davis, I don't know if any of you know who he is. He was, uh, he was a professor for many years at Reform Seminary. Then he went back into the pastorate. Then he left the pastorate, went back to Reform Seminary. And then he went back into the pastorate again. Well, I've heard him say this a couple times in the pulpit. He says, now, just for a minute, he says, he says to the congregation, you're going to have to think. 
I know it's church and we're not supposed to have to think. Now, he's being a little bit sarcastic. So if you don't like what I just said, then it's, I'm just taking that from, from Ralph Davis. But this is a little bit technical here, verse 9, because if you read verse 9 as it's laid out in the ESV and, and all, the, all the modern versions except for one, NLT, they interpreted it for you. If you read it, it doesn't make sense as it's laid out. Now, they're just giving you the, the word order pretty much of the original. So look at it and, and see how it doesn't make sense in one, se- in one sense here. But we see him who, this is verse 9, but we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. But look at the next phrase. If it goes with what just came before, it doesn't make any sense. It says, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might suffer death for everyone. So if you read it right in line, it sounds like he suffered death so that he could suffer death. So what's the problem here? Well, it's just a simple uh, way that ancient writers wrote, and it's something called a chiasmus. Now, I'm not going to bother to explain that. It comes from the Greek letter chi, uh, which looks like a big X. And all it means is, let me put it this way. We have rhyming patterns in English, right? We have the A, B, A, B, or we might have A, A, B, B. You know, our hymnals are made that way. You know, one rhyme will rhyme with the next line. But this is an A, B, B, A, B, B, A pattern. Abba. It doesn't have anything to do with Abba, God, Abba, but it's Abba. So this is what it means. Let me read it to you how this structure would work. It would mean this. It would mean you've got four lines, and the first one goes with the last one, and the two middle ones go together. So look at your Bible and read it this way. The first line. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Skip down to the last clause. Crowned with glory and honor. Excuse me, I skipped it. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let me do that again. The first clause. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And then put the two middle clauses together. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Now, one other thing I'll say about that, and this might help you a lot. and You don't have to do this if you've got a pencil. Something that you could do, if you just put parentheses around, if you've got an ESV, around the word crowned and where it ends with death. So crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That's another way to explain it. It's a parenthetical thought. So that there it really it breaks off the first clause from the last clause. All I'm trying to say is if you don't do that, if you don't understand that, it doesn't make any sense. Because, again, Jesus... Uh, he was crowned with, with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And if you take the next clause, it's following right after that, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. doesn't make any sense. So A, B, B, A, just remember that. First line, second two lines go together, and the last line goes with the first line. I don't know if I wasted my time doing that or not, but I just wanted you to know that. I mean, I had two little things, one, one shoulder saying, don't do this, don't do this. The other one said, do it, do it. And I went with this one. The point is this. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because he became a little lower than the angels and he suffered death as a substitute for everyone. I'll come back to that in a minute. The everyone thing. 
See, Jesus did what Adam failed to do. And what of all of Adam's fallen progeny have failed to do. Think about this. This is an original. This is not a, an original thought with me. But Adam, he failed to be what God wanted to be in a perfect garden. He failed a temptation by Satan in a perfect place as an unfallen being. But Jesus triumphed over the great temptation that he faced in Matthew 4, Luke 4. In a wilderness filled with wild bees, we're told by Mark, with no food or water for 40 days. He succeeded where Adam failed. We're riding on his coattails, on Jesus' coattails. Jesus became the Psalm 8 man by the suffering of death. It says there, by the way, he tasted death. What does that mean? Does that mean he kind of sort of died? He didn't really die? Like if you go someplace where they have a a tasting thing, they give you a little taste of each thing. You don't eat the whole thing. You just have a little taste of it. You don't really eat the whole thing. But that's not the biblical idiom. When it says he tasted death, it means he completely experienced death. And you find that kind of idiom used. I'll just give you one example. Uh, Matthew 16:28. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does he mean? He says, there are some people standing here who will not die until they see me coming in my kingdom and my glory. And three of them saw that when he went to the transfiguration. So when he says taste death, he means he means here that uh, they won't die. It's the real thing. Jesus really died. And, then you, and as you know, like Islam does, they, they reject the idea that this prophet Jesus died. But he did. In fact, the Bible puts it another way. He fully drank the cup of wrath. That's why he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, take this cup away from me. What cup is he talking about? The cup of wrath that's about to be poured out on him for guilty sinners. He drank it down to the very dregs. He didn't just take a sip of it. He completely emptied the cup. Uh, in Psalm 75, 8, it says this about God's cup of wrath in, in its relationship to unbelievers. Surely, this cup of wrath, surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He suffered hell on the cross. And then his body died. And what that means is, if you're a believer in Jesus, there's absolutely no wrath left in that cup. It's been completely drained it's been right down to the leaves, right down to the very dregs, because Jesus tasted death in its awful fullness, right to the bottom of the cup. There's nothing left for you and me. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, none. And that's something that God would have every believer come to have confidence in. Because we all know what we are still in reality, and it's hard to grasp that sometimes that God truly will never condemn me for my sins because they've been laid on Jesus. He fully drank the cup. Now, again, there's a phrase there at the end of verse nine, which says he did this for everyone. Now, there are groups that say, well, that means then there's nothing to be done by anybody. You have no responsibility i.e. to repent and believe in him because he died for everyone. Universalism. There's even churches that call themselves universalist church and it means no matter who you are, what you've done, what you believe in, 
Jesus, whether you acknowledge it or not, Jesus died for everyone and you're saved. But even people who don't believe in so-called limited atonement, I don't like that expression. I'd rather use definite atonement, particular atonement. Even people who don't believe in that so-called Calvinistic view, they limit the atonement themselves because a true evangelical will say the only people who are saved are those who believe in Jesus. So they're limiting the atonement themselves. Um, this doctrine of definite atonement is not to terrify us. It's not to give us angst. It's to encourage us that, that, that what Jesus did on the cross cannot fail. It wasn't a potential atonement on the cross. It was a real atonement. He accomplished salvation for his people. And even in this context, have you noticed some of the terminology that's used here when it says he died for everyone? Look at the context. Verse 14, Jesus, back at the first chapter, Jesus died on behalf of, of whom? Those who will inherit salvation. Uh, verse 10, the everyone is the many sons. Verse 10. Verse 11, those being sanctified. Verse 11 and verse 12, the brethren. Verse 14, the children. Verse 13, also the children whom God has given me. Uh, verse 17, those for whom he's a merciful and faithful high priest. Listen to Jesus' prayer, his high priestly prayer in John 17, 9. He's praying to his father. I pray for them. He's talking about his followers, his disciples. I pray for them. Now get a load of this. This is shocking, unless you believe the Bible. I do not pray for the world. Jesus says, I do not pray for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. In other words... What the teaching is this, the scope of the atonement aligns exactly in parallel to Jesus' intercession. Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me shall come to me. Now that's supposed to encourage us. The point is this, God has a definite plan and purpose, and Jesus' death on the cross can't be, it can't be in any way thwarted. Like, well, it was wasted because so many people didn't come. No, everybody whom, whom the Father gives to the Son is a gift. And if you're a believer, you're a gift of God the Father to God the Son will come. I mean, the Bible says, Jesus says, he came to lay down his life for the sheep. He loved the church and gave himself for her. Was the angel Gabriel... Was, was he a bad theologian when he said to Joseph about this Jesus? He shall save his people from his sins, from their sins. God's purpose cannot be thwarted. I hope you come, if you don't already, and I know most, a, lot of, a lot of people hate this doctrine, but I hope you come to love it, to see that God is purposeful in everything he does. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing is willy-nilly. I mean... Aren't you glad that the Bible tells us that salvation is going to include a multitude of people that no one can number? This is Revelation 7, 9, out of every nation, tribe, people and tongue. It's the number is so large, speaking metaphorically, we can't number it. Someone says, but wait a minute, what does this do to evangelism? If we know God has an elect and that God has a definite atonement, 
Do I have to know? No. You have nothing, that has nothing to do with evangelism whatsoever. In other words, can I look at someone and say this to them and make this bona fide offer that the Bible makes? Can I look at someone and say that I don't know, that who's not a believer? Can I look at him and say legitimately, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Can I say that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life? Can I say, Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved? Yes. Yes. That's my business. That's your business. Um, a late pastor in, in Canada, a guy by the name of Bill Payne, he wrote a book. It's really a booklet. It's, the name of it is Sinners Jesus Will Receive. And he's talking about this very issue. And he said this. It's kind of repeating what I just said. But he wrote this. Can I tell any and every sinner that if he comes to God through Jesus Christ and cast himself on the atonement of Jesus for the cleansing of his sins, he shall be pardoned? The answer is an unequivocal yes. So don't get hung up on that. Just have confidence when you go out. God has a people. It, it cannot fail. And if I tell this person that if he believes he'll be saved, he will be. There's never been a person who said, yes, I, I want to believe. And all of a sudden, there's something comes out of heaven and says, no, no, you're not one of them. Sorry. Sorry. Get out. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will no wise cast out. One of the last. Well, it is the last invitation of the Bible. Revelation 22:17, And the spirit and the bride say to unbelievers, come. And let him who hears say, come and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires the old hymn is whoever whosoever wills. Same thing. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. That is at no cost. So I hope you come to love that, that doctrine. And wouldn't you rather leave things in God's hands than your own? If I ran the world, no, it'd be a mess. One writer said this, Jesus accomplished redemption, the redemption of his people by tasting death so that his people may live and rule with him. And someone else put it this way, Jesus successful walk through this world and his death guarantee the fulfillment of the destiny of mankind in him. And so we sit with him on his throne, as we said last week, and we rule and reign with him. Now, one last thing before. I'm done. By the way, I hate that clock. <laughs> Not just that clock. I hate the clock. I have, I have my wife tell me every week on the way home, what time did I get up there? So last week I was 37 minutes, so I didn't feel too bad. Even though we ended at noontime last week, but we didn't have communion because something happened. I don't know what happened. But uh, anyway, so if we are long, it's your fault. It's not my fault. Yours, because you went too long doing something else. Uh, so I just wasted a couple minutes there, didn't I? Okay, verses 10 through 13. The Father's sending of His Son to die on our behalf. It was the acceptable method. It was the only acceptable method. Notice how it puts it in verse 10. It was fitting for Him. It was fitting. That goes back to explain verse 9. It was fitting that He for whom and by whom are all things, by all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that they should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. God 
In the mind of the infinite, all-wise God, he said, this is the plan. It's an eternal plan. The Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. In fact, the Bible says. So the writer now is explaining more fully why Jesus Christ had to taste death on behalf of all. He tells us it aligned with God's eternal purpose. It was fitting. It was no accident. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't like God was saying, I've got to do something with this. I, I, I sent him into the world so people would receive him. They've rejected him. They've killed him. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll say, well, he's atoning for sins. There was no plan B. This was God's plan. He used the sin of man. Acts 2.23. He used the sin of man to work out his eternal purpose. The reason Jesus died on the cross was because it was fitting to God. It was suitable. It was proper. It was right in the mind of God. And that's the way God chose to restore your individual soul and your place as a, as a king, as a priest in the world to come. It suited God because God is perfect in holiness, righteousness, love, mercy, and grace. He's just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. You know, the regener- unregenerate mind says, this whole thing that we say we believe this morning that we've been talking about here, the world, you know, sometimes the world is kind enough to say, well, you know what, if that brings you peace of mind, so be it. You know, there are people who are out of their minds living institutions and they're happy with the way they are. If that's what makes you happy, have at it. There are other people, though, who say they, they just say it's foolishness, as it says in First Corinthians 118. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And you're in one camp or the other. The scripture says in Isaiah, it pleased Yahweh to crush him. That's God's way. I suppose if it had been left up to me, I wouldn't have been so violent. But I'm not God. See, what we have to remember is this. Any time you read anything in the Bible that seems... Let's say you've really come to understand what it's saying. And you think... They kind of don't, you know, like one one big thing that people have a real problem with. They go back to the Old Testament and they see the holy wars where God puts a certain tribe under the ban, as it's called, and that to be wiped out completely, including children. People see that and they say, oh, what a horrible, what a horrible thing. I can't buy that. I can't believe that. What a terrible God. But you have to remember two things. I have to remember two things. My mind is finite. In fact. Do you realize that you're ignorant, and I'm ignorant, of most things there are to know? I know just a little tiny bit of, of what's real, of reality. The rest of it I don't even know. And, and it'll always be that way, because there's an infinite amount of things to know. God's an infinite God. So just to start off with, if I say God is, is infinite in his knowledge, and here I am, a created being, I'm finite, am I going to say, God, let's debate? But here's the other problem. There's nothing wrong with being finite. That's how God made us. But the other problem is, and I think you're already thinking about it, we're sinful. My mind is still fallen. So when God says something, if I don't agree with it, the problem is here. The problem is not God. And so with the gospel, I'm not to be ashamed of the gospel. I'm not to be ashamed to tell modern man, yes, the cross has great relevance. It's the only way that you can have well-being forever and ever. I don't care if they say it's foolishness or not. It's God's word. God deemed it fitting. 
And, of course, God has the prerogative. Did you notice that phrase there in verse 10? It was fitting that, and here's the phrase, that he for whom and by whom all things exist. That's telling us, as Aaron prayed earlier, God is sovereign. Everything is for God and everything is from God. Or, as it says in Colossians 1.16, speaking of Christ, all things were created through him and for him. And if that's the case, and it is, it's foolish and it's rebellious to kick at the gospel. You can't create reality. God is the creator of reality. And yet this is what many people do. Do you realize this morning, let's just pick the eastern time zone. There are people meeting in religious services all over the place. And a great percentage of them reject the gospel. Well, They're carrying Bibles this morning. They're just picking and choosing what they like out of it. But the gospel is gross. It's grotesque. It's talking about shed blood and the God crushing and wrath poured out. Now, what is all this? God loves everybody right and everybody's going to be saved. You know what they're doing? They're saying, we know more than God. We know more than God. We're more loving than God. And it's happening all over the place. In other words, what I'm really saying is, do we dare alter the gospel? I dare not. If God deems it fitting to restore us to his favor and to glory, honor, and dominion forever by the incarnation, life, and death of his son, then, as Isaac Watts said, should we blush to speak his name? Am I more afraid of modern, lost, fallen man than I am the eternal God? Sometimes, yes, but it shouldn't be that way. Only Jesus' death on the cross is a sweet-smelling aroma to God, Ephesians 5.2. And everything else that pretends it's the way of salvation is a stench in the nostrils of God. It was fitting. Well, I better stop there. I'm not going to quite finish, but I want to go back to Elkhorn in, in closing. Because we have these, this wonderful... It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory... That's our destination. Many sons, not a few, many. You know, percentage-wise, very few people will be saved. That's what Jesus says. Few find the narrow way. Few find it. Many are on the broad way. But numbers-wise, the number is great, as Revelation 7-9 tells us. It's, an, it's what no one can number. So here's the thing, as I, as I close. We've got this prospect before us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became man to restore us to dominion, not only save our souls. It would have been enough if God just said, I'm going to save your soul. You won't go to hell. You'll just go out of existence forever. But he doesn't do that. He says, not only am I going to save your soul, I'm going to give you a new body. I'm going to recreate the place you live and you're going to live in bliss and you're going to live in a happy dominion over the earth forever and ever. Well, I close with Alcorn again. He says, does the thought of experiencing a resurrected world appeal to you? Does it ignite your imagination to realize we will live happily ever after on a planet without sin and suffering? Is this part of the good news you share with others? Let's never settle for less than the full breadth of God's promised salvation. What he means is, we die, and we go off into a gassy world somewhere. Let us never settle for less than the full breadth of God's promised salvation. Eternal life with God's people on a redeemed earth 
governed by the King of Kings, whom we will joyfully worship and serve forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the great hope that we have. We thank you that we've been delivered from eternity in hell. God, help us at at times to think about what that really means. It's beyond what we can imagine and think, but help us to realize what you have delivered us from and through Jesus, what you've delivered us to. Right now, it's a tough world to live in. Saved and unsaved alike, it's a, it's a difficult world, Father, that we're living in under the fall. It's a broken, cracked world. Um, and so at times we can lose sight in the, in the mire of difficulties in this world, in our own personal lives and our church lives, political world. It seems like it's just never going to happen, but Lord, help us by faith to persevere and to believe that not only will you resurrect us one day or glorify our bodies, make them, making them like unto Jesus, but you will also give us this perfect place to live in where there'll never be one nanosecond of difficulty ever, ever again. All because of Jesus Christ, because he suffered shame and death for us. We thank you that he's the risen Savior and that one day he will return and make all things new. We pray these things in his name. Amen.